0: Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD bodybuilder, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today I'm joined by Dr. Mike Gissertel, who's the co-founder of Renaissance Periodization and a leading expert in hypertrophy training and recent author of the book, The Scientific Principles of Hypertrophy Training. Thanks for coming back on the show, Mike.
1: Thanks for having me, Dr. Wong. I am excited to be back.
0: Great. So today we're going to be talking about advanced hypertrophy training, our favorite, and we'll be focusing on an important concept um, in Dr. Mike's recent book that is the stimulus to fatigue ratio. And before delving into this, I just have a very serious question for you, Mike, and that is what's the most amount of breakfast cereal that you've eaten in one meal? You know,
1: Uh, I'm just not as big of an eater as I would like to make people, uh, believe. Uh, so it's only ever been a box of cereal at a time with milk, of course, but there's people out there saying they can eat two boxes. I, um, I'm in like the early stages of my mass phase after my last contest, but I had like a recovery diet, which is a mass phase in and of itself. And I was like super crazy, psycho hungry during most of the recovery diet. But by now, I'm just not that hungry anymore. Like, you know, that post-cut psychosis of just like everything tastes good. That's over. And mm-hmm. yesterday I had a leg day and after legs, I do the cereal. And I bought a thing of Cocoa Krispies and it's 11 servings. And each one of them is 35 grams of carbs. So it's yeah. like an inordinate amount of carbs. I think it ended up with cereal being like 420 grams. I thought I could one meal the shit. I just couldn't, man. I had to split it up into two meals. I just had soggy cereal left over. I couldn't do it. So I would have to say the most I've ever had as far as grams of carbs in one meal from cereal is like in the 350 range. After 350, something happens where I just can't do it. So a giant disappointment.
0: That is wild. So just to jump into our meat of our discussion today um and maybe just setting the stage um, congratulations on the recent launch of your book i think there's been a huge step forward for the community and it's been definitely been something that i've been waiting for for a while i remember hearing you mention the the book like years ago and yeah. just thinking like we need this we need this now <laughs> <laughs> well thanks
1: i hope i hope you enjoyed the book you don't have to puff up my skirt at all here uh i mean I don't know. What did you think? Did you think it was okay?
0: (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's yeah, it 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 speaks to all the things I needed it to. Very
1: cool. That's really good news. I mean, the book is as you read in the introduction, it's targeted essentially towards folks like yourself and people that listen to your podcast that are like pretty well versed in all the stuff and very intelligent and know the terminology. They just want like a an integrated an integrated approach to all the things that a lot of people, including myself, have just sort of been hinting at. Um, Now they can all be in one book and and super well explained. And I guess the stimulus to fatigue ratio is kind of one of these core concepts, which has never really formally been explained in writing until the book was published.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And I remember hearing you mention it the first time and just having this mind explosion and and like, (laughs) oh my goodness, this is like everything I needed, like in three words. So that was great. Um, And hopefully this will really, um, illuminate our audience. Um, yeah, out of curiosity, what would you say are your favorite concepts or concepts that you're most proud of introducing in this book? Well, so like, I can't say the volume landmarks because I introduced those with James Hoffman and
1: like 50 other books. Um, but I I gotta say the stimulus to fatigue ratio probably takes the cake. Um, it it's a formalization of something that many people didn't conceptualize at all. And some people did have a concept of, but just never formalized. Um, And even though the details can be debated significantly, there is definitely a thing out in the world, a concept that has true value that is the stimulus to fatigue ratio. And it answers so many questions about how to program when you really just say, okay, I want the best stimulus to fatigue ratio possible. It answers a lot of questions about what exercises to pick how to do the exercises, what rep ranges to use, and even when to switch to new exercises. Um, without the stimulus to fatigue ratio, so so little could be said about what we ended up saying in the book. It's a real core concept that I think ties a lot of stuff together. Uh, it has to be mentioned. I also like the STR, which will never be talked about as, as much as the stimulus to fatigue ratio, the stimulus to time ratio. It, it kind of like explains why CrossFit looks the way it does. Mm-hmm. And, and really tells people, because, you know, a lot of times people will follow advanced hypertrophy folks, but they'll be in a situation themselves where they can only train for three uh, hours per week, you know, three sessions per week, one hour each, and to them, the stimulus to time ratio really is much more important, and I hope that the folks that read that part really get a lot out of it, um, because stimulus to fatigue ratio is super important for all of us, me, you, and most of the people listening to this podcast probably that have quite a bit of time to dedicate to training, because we've made the time, you know. But not everyone trains sort of half half the full time like we do, and it ends up being that they they need a slightly different uh, series of constraints. But uh, other than that, lip service to SDR, really the, the stimulus to fatigue ratio, as far as I've uh, abbreviated it. I think, man, it's just um, I'm not going to be too proud of myself about it, but I do I do enjoy that 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 was a thing we could explain to people.
0: Yeah, that's great. Hopefully, we'll have some time to talk about STR at some point. Um, if not today, another time. But yeah, just jumping into our SFR discussion, um, maybe just starting off with a broad uh, definition.
1: Sure. So the stimulus to fatigue ratio is basically trying to get at when you do any unit of training, we'll just say one exercise or a set of an exercise we can attempt to conceptualize that that unit necessarily has to come with two things. One, some amount of stimulus to grow muscle. Really, you can have stimulus to do anything. That's the expanded version of stimulus to fatigue ratio can even be applied to things like cardio. Um, But generally in the concept or in the the realm of hypertrophy, the stimulus is like how much muscle growth is likely to be at least um, signaled by this one set we did of this exercise and then if that has to be ratioed or sort of divided by uh, some attempt at measurement of how much fatigue that set also caused. And a ton of stuff opens up from this that I'm sure we'll get to later in the discussion that once you have even a remote guess at either one of these, it can tell you a lot about how not great or awesome an exercise, a technique, a training plan, so, long, uh, so on and so forth is. mm
0: mm-hmm yeah and i think it's just really interesting to think about like all the different ways that you can apply the concept once you sort of have grasped it um and yeah so i i was thinking that one way to go about it this would would be to talk about just sort of the numerator and then denominator so starting off with the stimulus itself um how would you go about talking about just quantifying stimulus
1: so you know, there are two ways to quantify. One is a formal measurement, which unfortunately is not realistic to do. Um, You know, we can have a measurement of, of fractional synthetic rate uh, over the course, you know, multiple hours after. And that's not really realistic. Nobody really is interested in biopsies or uh, radioactive labeling occurring to them. <laughs> yeah. uh, nor Uh You know, you have to, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission doesn't like you shooting radioactive stuff in your body <laughs> all the time. Apparently they, they think that's a no-no. So, it, you know, there's that and maybe someday some kind of, uh, you know, nanotech invasive technology will allow you to actually do that, which would be amazing. But until that day comes, we have to use a second method, which is proxying. Um, and I have I have chosen three proxies or myself and James Hoffman, who helped develop these things with me and to some large extent, Jared Father and Melissa Davis. Um, we've sort of developed or, or arrived at three proxies of stimulus which we think are pretty decent. And and they of course uh, are absolutely amenable to criticism, but uh, I think they're a good start. Uh, One of them is the pump, okay? So like if you do a set of curls and you don't get a pump at all in your biceps, but you get a massive pump in your forearms, if you can stare someone in the face and be like, nope, this is a great bicep stimulus and it's not stimulating my forearms at all. Anyone who's trained before for any length of time will look at you curiously. Can you imagine being like, man, I have an incredible chest pump. And they're like, would you train today? You're like, back. They're like, huh, uh, something's wrong with that. So a lot of times people say like, well, the pump doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean growth. At the very least, it means you're targeting the muscle that you want to target, right? And Mm -hmm. if it takes you six sets to get a pump versus two sets to get a pump, one of those may be more stimulative than the other, or at least targets the muscle better than the other. And we have even better reason than that uh, to believe that the pump is correlative or predicts hypertrophy, there's it's been directly shown that cell swelling actually causes hypertrophic mechanisms to activate. In addition to that, cell swelling is very well correlated to the amount of metabolite sequestration inside a muscle cell and around the muscle cell, which again has been shown to cause hypertrophy. And in addition to that, a high tension disruptive events to the muscle cell tend to cause a reactive hyperemia and through other mechanisms cause cell swelling. So I think when you get a big pump, it has actually a pretty decent predictive effect on hypertrophy. Now, you, if you get a massive pump from excessive damage that can actually mean that you get less hypertrophy but getting no pump at all versus a decent pump, usually the decent pump wins. Um, it is our hypothesis at the very least. Um, in addition to that, we have uh, another proxy, which is um, uh, the, the sort of detection of of, uh, tension uh, generated at the muscle. So this is, uh, we call it the mind-muscle connection, Uh, slightly different interpretation of what that means than some other folks, but I think Mm. our our interpretation stands pretty well. It's basically when you're doing an exercise, do you feel the target muscle contracting? In other words, do you feel a high degree of tension uh, throughput through the muscle? and or if it's higher reps and maybe it's just not enough load to cause high tension, do you feel a metabolite burn in the target muscle? So for example, if you're claiming that lunges are great for the glutes and when someone's doing them, they can neither feel the glutes having a high tension throughput, nor do they get a burn in their glutes, man, you know, maybe lunges are for the glutes, but what if they said they feel a ton of tension in their quads during the movement and a ton of burn in their quads? that's at least as much of a quad hypertrophy move as a glute move and maybe even more because seemingly if the quads are contracting a ton, you know we know tension is a stimulator of hypertrophy. If there's a high amount of tension like in your quads, yeah, that's probably causing some growth. And if you get a lot of metabolite development and thus the burn, we know that metabolites independently cause some hypertrophy and also that the way you develop metabolites is the sequential failure of various motor units and then the need to switch to uh, glycolytic uh, power production pathways and the inability of, of your clearance to keep up, it means your muscle cell is being pushed to the limits, which we also know is is predictive of hypertrophy. So at some point, like if you could do an exercise, let's say you're trying to experiment with different techniques and uh, you're trying to hit the lats and you know you ask someone like, do you feel tension in the lats in this exercise? And they're like, no, Like, do you feel a burn when we go close to failure with higher reps? And they're like, also no, I feel it in my rear delts." You know, I just wouldn't bet a lot of money that the lats are getting robustly stimulated, especially if after multiple sets, they also don't have a pump. Oh, I don't know, man, I, I you know, I wouldn't sell this as the best lat exercise of all time, especially for that particular person. And then lastly is uh, disruption. Uh, and, uh, you know, disruption can fall under a couple of categories. Um, and one of them is perturbation, which means that something happened to the muscle which disturbed it. And it's not functioning normally anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the typical, uh, you know, when you've done three sets of high rep leg press or squat and try to walk down the stairs, you literally feel wobbly. And someone can say like, hey, do you think you hit your quads? Be like, Of course, I fucking hit my quads. I can (laughs) fucking walk. Like if my quads didn't get activated, what the hell is wrong with my quads? Somebody tell me, right? And that doesn't mean that an infinite amount of disruption is a good thing but some disruption is clearly going to be coming along for the ride if you're hitting the appropriate muscles and probably scales linearly up to a point where more disruption means you probably caused more hypertrophy. Um, In addition to perturbation, there is strength loss. So acute strength loss probably means something is happening. For example, if you wanna know if a lot of hypertrophy was caused during work sets, if someone can do sets of 15 on the bicep curl, just sets a 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, and they never get tired, you got to wonder if they're really recruiting a lot of high-end motor units. Those are the ones that grow the most. If they're not getting tired, what the hell is happening? Like, are they really being recruited? We know that high-threshold motor units both cause a lot of hypertrophy when they're recruited, and we also know that they get tired pretty reliably. They're actually the first ones to get tired. If you can repeatedly do set after set after set of similar RAR, and you're just not getting tired, man, your relative effort is probably really, really low. But if you're high relative effort and you're hitting the faster twitch motor units, which is to say you're probably causing a lot of muscle growth, then a few sets later, you can't perform the same number of reps. So if you started squatting with sets of 15, and after four sets of squats, you can barely do sets of eight, I'm inclined to believe that something in your squatting kinetic chain is fatigued, and thus it was recruited, and it is probably hypertrophic to some extent. Mm -hmm. And then the last part of the sort of the trifecta of disruption is some degree of soreness. So it, it can just be like a diffuse soreness that lasts for several hours. It can be a, a delayed onset muscle soreness that develops several hours or even several days after. And I mean, soreness doesn't necessarily mean growth. It can actually mean you took on so much damage, you uh, sort of canceled out a bunch of growth because your body's busy recovering and not growing, but it does help uh, at least with targeting. So for example, if you wanna ask the question of, does this style of bent over like upright rowing barbell face pull, does it hit my rear delts? You can do a lot of volume on it. And if you get sore in your rear delts, you can be sure that like, okay, well, like the rear delts got sore. They have, that means they're contracting. That means they have to be stimulated with appropriate volumes, even if this time was too much. But if you do 10 sets of face pulls and the only thing that gets sore is your forearms and your rear delts aren't even sore at all, you just can't rank it as a very high exercise on the list of exercises to hit the rear delts because even with an inordinate amount of volume and an exercise you're not used to, like if that exercise didn't make you sore in the target muscle and it made you sore in other muscles, man, maybe it's not the greatest exercise ever because stimulus to fatigue ratio is in most cases referring to not general stimulus, it's not really any such thing, but stimulus to the target muscle itself. Maybe a better example is if someone teaches you how to bench press in a certain style, and it's a, uh, designed to get your pecs to grow, but the thing that gets sore is your front delts and your pecs never get sore. You got to wonder what is really the, that's getting the most stimulus. Is it really more of a front delt exercise at that point? Maybe less of a pack exercise than you thought. So that's mm-hmm. the numerator as far as stimulus uh, is concerned. It is essentially asking you you know, how much of a mind muscle connection did you get? Did you feel a, a, dis- uh, uh, a high level of tension in the target muscle or a burn at higher reps? Uh, you can ask the question of how big of a pump uh, you got after a certain number of sets and compared exercises or techniques that way. And also what degree of disruption was imposed, perturbation, uh, loss of local strength and potentially soreness of some kind. And look, if you have an exercise and I'll just use uh, one easy example, and of course there's tons of mixing and matching, mm-hmm. but if you you know someone lets you do two leg exercise, one is like a BOSU ball funky weird squat and the other one is like a hack squat machine with super full range of motion close to failure, you do three sets of each, you know, the hack squat, it'd be like, you know, did you feel tension in your quads? Like, dude, that's the only fucking thing I felt for the 50 seconds I did the hack squat. And then you say, well, did you have a burn? Like, yeah, I'm actually vomiting blood because the burn was so high, I couldn't move my legs. Did you get a pump? Like, no, I literally can't move my quads and they feel like balloons. And, you know, did you get, you know, perturbation? Yes, I can't walk. Did you get a strength loss? Yes, I can't walk. And <laughs> do you get disruption? Like, well, something feels off, but. Let me tell you in a couple days, you call that person back two days later and they're like, I can't get out of bed. My quads are so sore. Like maybe it was too much stimulus, but it sure as hell wasn't enough, right? Whereas if that person did BOSU ball weirdo squats on one leg, you could ask them like, hey, like, you know, what's the mind muscle connection? Like, do you feel a ton of tension in your quads? Like, no, I just mostly feel off balance. Like, are you getting a pump? Like, not really. I'm getting a pump in my forearm, trying to hold myself up. And then, you know, are you like, are you, do you what is your degree of disruption? you know, how many people can squat truly to failure on a BOSU ball? Like, it's never really muscular failure. You're never tired. You're just kind of like, I just don't want to do this anymore. And then you can ask them a day later, are you sore? And they're like, not really. Like, I feel fine. My knees feel weird, but everything else feels fine. You know, that's an extreme illustration, but every other exercise for quads is somewhere
0: between those two extremes. Mm -hmm. So much for my BOSU ball sponsorship.
1: (laughs) I know, you just have to cancel after this episode. (laughs)
0: Yeah, so that was that was a very well well structured um sort of approach to things. Um and I, I really like how you sort of like outlined the different indicators uh, in terms of like burn, pump and soreness and how I think a lot of the utility in these sort of markers aren't necessarily where a lot of um, bodybuilders will talk about how they cause necessarily cause hypertrophy but perhaps more so as markers or um, signals that, w- that we can use to guide our own programming and say that, Hey, this is, this exercise works for me and not necessarily having to go just blindly off of what someone else has told us. Um, but using these markers and how they actually can happen at different times in the training session or in the training week. So like how you might feel a burn acutely, then you might feel pumped later in the workout, you might feel sore the next day and accumulating this data sort of over time can all come together to help you uh, with your exercise selection.
1: Totally. And I've received a bit of pushback on these uh, from folks with all the best intentions. And I think they have some good points, but I think um, kind of using that more extreme example illustrates how they can be useful. So people can say independently, like, you know, the tr- studies that attempt to correlate to pump with hypertrophy aren't as good as we'd like them to be. Soreness again has that same problem, and then mind-muscle connections kind of a bit of really subjective thing. So you know, how can you be so sure about it? Well, think about it this way: if someone takes you to the gym and they're like, "Dude, I got the best lat exercise for you. Try the shit. We're gonna train it hard. Tell me what you think." If you get no tension, seemingly almost no burn, no pump to speak of after five sets in your lats, other muscles are pumped to shit and burning and crazy. And in addition to that, when you get sore later, you get sore on your rear and your triceps and your rhomboids, and you don't get sore on your lats at all, like nothing. Uh, and then you do a typical like lat isolation exercise after this one, and your lats are still at full strength, like a straight arm pull down. Um, are you really so sure that you're gonna bet on this as a big lat exercise? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I just wouldn't. People say, well, none of that stuff matters. Well, then what matters, you know, because, you know, biomechanics is quite a complex thing. People are built differently. You may think you're activating one muscle when another muscle is really taking over. At the end of the day, these things are not magical, but I think they are useful. And if you're hit, if you're checking all the boxes pretty robustly, it's hard to argue that you're understimulating. And, and to, to use the other alternate example, if you do that crazy lat exercise that someone shows you, it just lights your ass up. You're pumped like crazy. You feel like fucking unreal tension, just pulling your lats apart. Mm-hmm. At some point, you know, you get sore for three days in your lats, which never happens. You can't call it a terrible exercise. Maybe it's really fatiguing too. We'll get to that in a minute, I'm sure. But at the very least, like it would just be really difficult if someone would come up to you and be like, oh yeah, you got pump burn soreness, et cetera. Man, that doesn't mean anything. Science refuted it. Like, okay. I find that very, very difficult to
0: Mm-hmm. And then in terms of the stimulus side, what are your thoughts on the use of EMG data?
1: Uh, uh, okay, so do you mean EMG data as uh, general EMG data from university studies or do you mean personalized EMG data?
0: Yeah, general.
1: General, yeah, like uh, it, it forms a part of the picture. So for example, I recently had a, a sort of just Instagram quick back and forth with uh, coach Cassim, Cassim Hansen, is the, you know, uh, a guy that uh, is the founder of N1 coaching I and mean, he's a pretty sharp guy. And, he, you know, I said that like I had a sample glute routine from a preview of a YouTube video we're doing in like, I don't know, three years, or so really ahead of schedule on YouTube. But um, he was like, I noticed that you do a lot of wide stance, like sumo stuff, you're recommending, you know, what do you have any like YouTube video where you explain the reasoning? And I was like, well, you know, like um, most people get the stimulus uh, proxies better when they do wide stance stuff for their glutes than close stance. Like people will get a burn in their glutes when they do wide stance sumo versus just regular deadlift and squat and so on and so forth. So I think that's very important to recognize. Um, But I said also, you know, the vast majority of the EMG studies on this topic, and they haven't been that many, but the majority, if not all of them, show that wider stances create more gluteus maximus activation. His reply was uh, was quite uh, quite adept and quite intelligent. He said, "Well, you know, like it's really difficult to get reliable EMG measurements from the glutes, specifically because there's a large degree of superficial fat tissue uh, in the epidermal layer, and so on and so forth." And that's totally valid. But I think we have to be comfortable in science with marginal uh, attempts at the truth. So if most EMG data fits the biomechanical model, we would think, uh, and what people report as far as, you know, man, like wide stand stuff really blows up my glutes, then probably it has some value, right? EMG data is imperfect, and it can, I wouldn't draw a whole lot of real specific conclusions about it. But generally, if it says, hey, benching like this versus benching like that seems to activate the pecs uh, more, this and that more. It's definitely something to think about. Um, And you always have to translate it into the practical world. And sometimes it doesn't translate. And I would also say that, like with anything, uh, multiple studies in the same direction are much better than one study. Because people, man, do you remember that, um, that hip thrust study came out from Brazil that said squats were as good or better than hip thrusts? And it turned out that study was just like whole cloth manufactured and just, I made it up. And like, you don't wanna be the guy that rests most of your plans on the one study that was made up. And EMGs are notoriously, as Coach Casson pointed out very aptly, uh, they're notoriously just not super reliable. But when multiple EMG studies say the same thing, same thing, same thing, we can be increasingly confident that they're accurate. I will say though, lastly, and I don't mean to rant too long, um, a lot of times, maybe 90% of the time, EMG studies confirm obvious fucking shit. They'll they'll be like, you know, Mm. squatting deeper hits your glutes more. Like (laughs) like you got to do like three squats to realize that that's true. Uh, and and then a lot of times it's just not this revelatory, like mysterious thing. And sometimes when the EMG studies say things that you really weren't ex- expecting, it's just one study at a time. And then another study comes to refute it. I think a lot of people try to use EMG studies as this quirky insight from science that like, you thought bicep curls hit your biceps, but turns out they hit your triceps. And it's dude, shut the fuck up. Like you can't possibly be serious and thinking that. Well, it's the EMG study, well, maybe it was wrong. So we got to take them with a big grain of salt. But when there's a bunch of them, and they confirm relatively obvious biomechanical rationale. They can be valuable in being like, look, like this is probably a good idea.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just imagine some grad student looking through literature and saying, like, sick, no one's done a study on this one. <laughs> Easy <Sorry>. paper <laughs> time. To, well, that's literally how it works. Uh, I know
1: that you have you ever done any graduate work in exercise science, or did your whole career medical education?
0: It's all been medicine. Yeah, I've done research yeah. of. In the medical field, but
1: sure. So, but like, well, I've done research in the um in the graduate field for Xray science. I tell you, too many studies, and I don't know if this is a good thing or bad thing. It's probably not the greatest thing. Most studies are shit you can easily do in your lab. So you look around, like, what do we have? Well, we have an EMG unit, and yeah, sweet, let's just do a bunch of EMG studies. <laughs> exactly. and you do them on random shit all the time. Yeah, <laughs> that happens. I mean, it's similar to medical population. Like if you work at a health center that has a lot of diabetics, you're studying diabetics. It doesn't matter like if you want to or not, that's just what you're doing. So,
0: yeah. (laughs) All right. Yeah. So now moving on to, I guess, the denominator and talking about fatigue. How do you go about um, looking at what contributes to fatigue and how much? Yeah, totally. So we've sort of
1: hypothesized uh, just to keep things simple, three denominators for fatigue, One of them, and easily the most straightforward one, probably the most salient one to most conversations in hypertrophy especially, is joint and connective tissue stress. Like if your quads get a gnarly pump from squats, but your knees hurt more and more with each rep and set, Mm. that fatigue denominator is gonna go higher and higher. And then it turns out the stimulus to fatigue ratio falls as it should, because yeah, squats may grow your quads a lot, but they won't grow them sustainably because at some point you just have to deload more often, or you'll rule out squats altogether because you'll get physically disruptive pain and you won't be able to do it anymore. And we've all been on different machines and different implements and done different techniques where like, you know, a shoulder press machine with handles like this might hurt your actual shoulder joint. Most people are like, dude, fuck that. And they switch to this and then it feels much better. What you're really doing is increasing your stimulus to fatigue ratio, because no doubt this would still stimulate your front belts considerably, but this is an easier handle and people say, Sometimes, why did you grab the outside handles versus the parallel inside ones? And you say, well, because these other ones don't hurt my shoulder as much. And it doesn't have to be pain. It can be subtle like disruption. Like, you know, like like Bill, when I'm talking about like you get off a particular hack squat and people are like, how was it? And you're like, it's good, it's good. My knees like, mm, they don't hurt, but it just something doesn't feel ideal versus if you get the ideal hack squat for your build, it's just like slicing warm butter. You're like, oh my fucking God. I don't even feel my joints. I just feel my quads This is amazing. So joint and connective tissue disruption uh, or fatigue is, is absolutely one of these. Uh, and another one is the rating of perceived exertion scaled to the number of sets you're doing. So one set of this exercise, how hard is it? How much do you have to try? right? And this is where things like deadlifts take a big hit. So for example, let's say you have a smart idea of training your hamstrings with conventional deadlifts. Do conventional deadlifts recruit your hamstrings? Yes. As much as stiff-legged deadlifts? No, not even close, but some. And you say, okay, like how difficult is a set, same RIR, let's say one rep in reserve of conventional deadlifts? Versus stiff legged deadlifts, oh my god, you could do stiff legged deadlifts after a warm up if you're tired as hell and it's just kind of a pain in the ass, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you do conventional deadlifts, I mean, you know what, like it's war, like it's the has to come sometimes, you know, your 90% of your reps don't even move off the ground. You're like, man, fuck this I can't even do this. Like, it takes it takes you got to jazz up to do real deadlifts in, mm-hmm. in a way you don't have to jazz up to do a bunch of other hamstring exercises, leg curls. You could be asleep and still do leg curls and hit your hamstrings just fine. Whereas deadlifts, yeah, okay, maybe the stimulus is decent, but that that relative effort that you have to put in there is gonna be super, super high. And the thing about the rating of perceived exertion is the ideal exercise hits crazy stimulus. Of course, it doesn't mess your joints up, but it also is easy to do. Now, I know that sounds like anathema to bodybuilders and everyone else who trains hard who want to tell themselves with a lot of wisdom of like, I don't give a fuck how hard or easy shit is. I do what it takes, totally. But imagine that there's two exercises and they both got you the same amount of, of hypertrophy. One just didn't take as much psychological oomph. Because the thing is per week, per session, per anything, you only have so much psychological oomph. If it degrades, you have less of it for other shit. And like, of course it recharges, but if deadlifts steal your soul Monday, your Wednesday back workout might not go as well because you just mm-hmm. don't have any more room left. But if you manage to do stiff-legged deadlifts instead of conventional deadlifts, and you get just as good, if not better, of a hamstring stimulus, but at half of the systemic fatigue that results from insane ratings of perceived exertion and insane psychological effort, then your back session Wednesday might go super, super well and you get the best of all worlds. So this is not to say that you should be avoiding tough exercises. It is to say that if an exercise has a really high rating of perceived exertion per set, it had better have a goddamn high level of stimulus to justify the shit. A Much worse example is, I like to use this one a lot. And we think we use it in the book. is like a sumo stance, super wide squat, halfway down with a rounded back. How is that fatigue on your uh, quads and stimulus on your quads? Well, like if you're gonna do that squat to a true one rep away from failure, you're gonna need like four, five, 600 pounds on the bar because it's a partial, right? But how hard is that? Like, it's fucking hard. Moving 600 pounds is hard. It doesn't even matter what range of motion you move it in. And it's a whole body movement. Like, holy shit, that stimulus is tiny because you're cutting a your range of motion. You're not even hardly targeting your quads because it's a super wide stance. Your back arches and, and uh, curves over. So actually a lot of the force to move the bar comes from your back. So it ends up being like, what do your quads get as far as stimulus? Well, you've got a really high rating of perceived exertion there, but the stimulus just doesn't justify it. Now somebody could say, man, you're sitting on a leg extension machine, fucking pussy, like that shit is easy. Like Yeah, it's easy, but it stimulates me really well. That means I have more time to do other shit, including more quad work. So mm-hmm. that rating of perceived exertion is a thing. And then lastly, we have a more direct measure of systemic fatigue. It is unaffected muscle strength. So for example, if you know chest has nothing to do with deadlifting, let's say, and you wanna see how much systemic fatigue a stiff-legged deadlift causes versus a conventional deadlift. So maybe your program one day is you do deadlifts of some kind and then after you do chest work, cause you know, like you can combine muscle groups and stuff. So what you can do is you say, okay, after four sets of regular deadlifts, how is my strength on chest presses of any kind, let's say barbell, flat bench. And then you can ask the question of after the same number of stiff-legged deadlift sets, how is my strength on chest press? Because if uh, you put a shitload of effort into, let's say, the deadlifts, your bench press isn't going to be as high as it usually is. You'll be systemically tired Mm -hmm. here again, we're not trying to run away from the hard exercises that cause a lot of systemic fatigue. That's why there's the ratio of like, if it causes a lot of systemic fatigue, if it really makes you weaker for other unrelated muscle groups later, which is a real measurement of systemic fatigue, because um, clearly your chest didn't get tired during deadlifts. Everything got tired and your chest is suffering. If something really beats you up systemically, it had better have a lot of stimulus to cancel out. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good way of thinking, it, actually, looking at other muscle groups and how they get affected, um, and just thinking about your overall session's productivity and how it gets affected by by the fatigue that accumulates. And I think this is something that, um, I mean, the sort of nuances of fatigue and how that plays into your program is really something that starts entering the equation as you become more advanced and becomes increasingly important. Totally, 100%. Um, what are your, what's sort of your definition of what people like to say call central fatigue and how does that fit in?
1: Yeah, that's a good, uh, that's a good question. So people really don't know a lot of times if they mean central fatigue or if they mean CNS fatigue or if they just mean fatigue. Um, I like, I prefer the term systemic fatigue. So so to be, so, so usually in proper sports science terms Central fatigue uh, involves generally fatigue of the brain, sometimes the spinal cord, but usually central fatigue is uh, brain origin fatigue. So your your muscles are fine, maybe. Um, the rest of your body's okay, maybe, or maybe it's really tired. But what your brain is doing is it has like a governor mechanism, which says, you know, I'm just not trying. Uh, above this level of effort, because I think I could be redlining it and potentially getting hurt or spending too many calories or whatever the evolutionary reasoning is there. So central fatigue is pretty well described in endurance athletics, for example, where uh, it's been shown pretty clearly that a lot of the limiting factors in endurance are actually central. And that means that your muscles are still good to go. Your lungs are good to go. You could be running faster, but your brain is like, dude, fuck that. Where are you going? We're gonna shut this down. It reduces the amount of uh, central drive to your peripheral nervous system. And you physically can't contract your muscles as hard as you're supposed to. And then it, eventually you're like, can't run as fast, right? So that really is the true definition I, I'm aware of, of central fatigue. I prefer the term, but unfortunately, when people say central fatigue in lifting, they usually don't mean just that brain fatigue. They mean all around fatigue that affects everything. Uh, non-local fatigue. And that's why in the book and in most of RRP's literature, we use the term systemic fatigue. Systemic mm-hmm. fatigue is fatigue of the brain, of the spinal cord. It is fatigue that affects the entire peripheral nervous system all at the same time as well. So people always say, CNS, 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 like, you know, you have a PNS. Uh, that sounds like <laughs> you have, I'm saying you have a penis, which is probably also <laughs> correct. But uh, so, uh, you know, it's not one of those things where where it's just the brain, it's a spinal cord, potentially peripheral nerves, and also there's all kinds of other models of fatigue that affect everything. For example, a cytokine model of fatigue, it's not really much of a model, it's pretty well confirmed that, you know, when your muscles get uh, significantly damaged, they release molecules called cytokines into the blood, which essentially downgrade your performance on a bunch of other stuff. Uh, there's other hormonal mediators like cortisol, if if a lot of your body is damaged or you tried really hard, your overall cortisol goes up and it actually does interfere with performance and, and recovery in a bunch of other ways. So that systemic fatigue really is a big picture view of everything. That's not just local to the muscle itself, which is why, for example, if you have a crazy leg workout, crazy back workout, crazy glute, uh, glute workout, crazy arm workout, you don't simply go the next day and have the best chest workout of your life. It's very unlikely because your brain, your spinal cord, peripheral nervous system and everything else in your body is really kind of like, dude, what the fuck? And that fatigue is felt by your local musculature and local nervous system that activates the pecs. And thus you may not get maximum pec activation and thus not as good of a workout as you can. So I really like to shy away from the term Central fatigue, and I prefer to use in the context of hypertrophy strength and most sport performance, systemic fatigue, because your brain could actually be really just fine, but even the incredible soreness and damage experienced by one unrelated muscle group can affect the performance and hypertrophy outcomes of other muscle groups that are nowhere near it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I think that's a very effective way of <clears throat> using the terminology. Um yeah, having talked about fatigue and just the the general uh, categories, are there some broad strokes trends in terms of exercise selection where where you might judge an exercise or or um, trends that would tell you that certain exercises are more fatiguing than others? Sure. Um, generally speaking, so just just to make this
1: caveat very clear, I get a lot of questions like, you know, what has a higher stimulus to fatigue ratio? This exercise, that exercise because these are all individual proxies, you just have to try it, right? But we know from general trends, what we can likely expect, we always have to double check if we want to be sure. But generally speaking, um, I can actually talk about s- s- think features of exercises that just increase the SFR altogether, give high stimulus and, and relatively low fatigue or vice cool. versa. Generally speaking, the higher the external load, the higher the fatigue will be. But- The stimulus is only determined by internal load, how much your muscles are actually contracting. So for example, if you're partial squatting 600 pounds, it's gonna confer a lot of fatigue. If you full squat 300 pounds, it may confer less fatigue because it's less loading on uh, the spine and so on and so forth. Um, But the internal forces can be just as high because the range of motion is greater and you reach a significant mechanical disadvantage at greater ranges of motion. And thus the muscles have to contract just as hard against 300 pounds as they do against 600 pounds. However, the joints take much more of a beating at 600 pounds than 300 pounds. So generally speaking, if you can find a way to approach muscular failure and still exert a high level of tension in the muscle while lowering the external load, that's probably raising your stimulus to fatigue ratio. Another thing is uh, tension under stretch generally increases the magnitude of the stimulus considerably, but oftentimes because Going for a deep stretch means you're not at a mechanical advantage anymore, significant disadvantage. A tension under stretch can generate incredibly high intramuscular forces causing hypertrophy, but at the expense of external load. So anytime you have a deep um, tension under stretch, you're probably likely to increase your stimulus to fatigue ratio again, which is why exercises like deficit push-ups, full squats, super full range of motion leg presses, devastate your muscles in all the best ways while not being nearly as fatiguing as you may expect them to be and probably not as fatiguing as uh, would be you know, their partial range of motion equivalence. Um, generally, a high degree of range of motion tends to confer more hypertrophy and, and at, because it requires less external load, cause less fatigue. Um, and, and those are, I, say, I would say the broad strokes uh, and of course also exercises that require less psyching up and so on and so forth Uh, can also cause less fatigue. But there, it's not as clear what the relationship is to the stimulus because sometimes they're also very, very stimulative. Somebody could say, you know, squats really beat me up. Yeah, but they also stimulate the shit out of you, right? So a lot of times, exercises can have the same SFRs, but um, can have higher degrees and lower degrees of absolute fatigue and of absolute stimulus. So for example, I would say in most cases, the barbell squat done properly for most people has a similar stimulus to fatigue ratio to the leg press, but the leg press both doesn't stimulate your quads as much, but also doesn't fatigue you as much. So it's uh, you got to think that's why the stimulus to fatigue ratio is so much better than just raw stimulus magnitude by itself or just fatigue by itself because it gives you the big picture on both and then you don't have to choose between squats and leg presses. Turns out you can use both intelligently because you know their stimulus to fatigue ratios are both high. However. Poorly performed squat or a very poorly performed leg press can start to shift the stimulus to fatigue ratio in the wrong direction.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, sort of looking back on how you see a lot of bodybuilders using certain techniques, and you realize that often they're trying to lower the load. And I guess looking back, you can explain it in terms of SFR, and it's just that they had never necessarily um explained it to that level of detail
1: yeah a lot of times you'll hear bodybuilders back in the day saying you it's not about lifting 200 pounds it's about making whatever weight you're lifting feel like 200 pounds and that like you know that's a <laughs> it's a fine colloquial way of explaining it but i think like maximizing internal loading of a muscle uh, is the technical way to explain it and it's nonetheless correct you know um if you are such at such a mechanical disadvantage that the, there has to be a very small amount of external load for you to get really high internal loads. Uh, that's a really good thing. Um, there's actually one exercise in particular that is usually designed inappropriately for my body because I'm a child's height instead of an adult's height. But have you ever seen the thing, it's like, a, it's like a leg extension squat hybrid where it's just this tiny little plate with two kind of like these uh, roller pads It just sits on the ground, and you're supposed to put your feet through it, and then you can squat back, and it prevents you from falling. Mm -hmm. So that, if you're tall enough to get a really good range of motion, is an incredible quad exercise. Why? Because it has all the best features of a leg extension, a lot of the best features of a squat, but essentially comes with almost no spinal loading. Because if you're really strong, just holding a 25-pound plate like this, oh, my God, sets of 10 or brutal as shit. You think, how the hell am I getting this with 25 pounds? Well, the the external load is low, but because of the massive leverage disadvantage you're at, the internal load to the quads is insanely high. Generally speaking, unless you're using squats as a way to thicken up your lower back and your glutes, et cetera, which is a fine way to use squats. um, If you are in a pinch and you need quad stimulus with very little fatigue, adjust specifically to the quads, it's so tough to beat that exercise because of the way it disadvantages you hilariously. That's where big bifurcation between strength training and hypertrophy training occur. Any particular exercise, the technique in hypertrophy training is to leverage it in such a way as, of course, is safe for the joints, but the poorest leverage you can find to really zap the muscle you want and to isolate the muscle you want versus in strength, you want the best leverage possible to isolate those fewest muscles possible, to use them all synergistically to get the app bar moving from point A to point B. So the way you would set up a deadlift or a squat or a press for hypertrophy can be quite different than the way you set it up for strength. And this is very pertinent to people that, you know. a lot of people, especially in the natural community, sort of do an even mixture of both. There's a lot of hybrid folks who do powerlifting and, and bodybuilding, and it's important to know that when you're training for hypertrophy, you should tailor your movements a little bit more towards that maximization of internal load and reduction of external load. But when you're going for strength, it actually needs to move in the other direction because nobody gives a shit how big your quads are. Can you squat 400 pounds unless you know how to use all your muscles together, minimize the range of motion exposed by any one muscle, then you can produce the highest forces.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that sort of, yeah, understanding these relationships are um, become very key as people become more advanced and have m- more difficulty continuing to progress. And I think one example that always pops into my mind is sort of, is the chest supported row, where as a, as I a became more advanced, you just look at one of those chest supported row machines and you're just like, man, that's, that's beautiful. <laughs> totally, because you don't have to stay upright the entire
1: time and zap away your lower back. You could be using for deadlifts, you know, two or three days later. And at the same time, I think the chest supported row, sometimes people latch on and they forget that there's other muscles that you can be concerned with, not just the muscles that directly pull. Uh, and that's where a bit of the nuance comes in, is chest supported row is a fantastic exercise in context. But you know, I do a lot of barbell rowing, and sometimes people ask, like, I literally had a guy ask me on Instagram a couple of days ago, I think, why not chest supported row? And I was like, why chest supported row? And he was like, I love just flipping that question on people and watching, be like, what the hell? Um, and he's like, well, it takes your it takes your like lower back and your spinal erectors out of the equation. And I'm like, snarkily, I winked at him so he I knew, he knew I was joking. I was like, why why don't you think I want to target my spinal erectors? And people forget that in bodybuilding, when you turn around to do a re- rear lat spread, if you have freaky spinal erectors, the judges are just like, what the fuck? One 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 one. Whereas if you have sweet lats. Cool, but lats aren't the only part of your back. So chest support rows are excellent for isolating, more isolating to lats, the rhomboids, chairs, major, uh, middle traps and so on and so forth. If you want gnarly spinal erectors, man, barbell bent over rows are real tough to beat and they suck and you gotta make sure that you make room for them in your your weekly volume because yeah, they do, their stimulus to fatigue ratio, here's a really cool concept their stimulus to fatigue ratio for all the muscles needed is probably very similar to chest supported row, but both are scaled. So the stimulus for barbell rows is probably higher, but the fatigue is higher too. And if you don't have that fatigue to give, you're on the chest supported row instead.
0: Yeah. Um, to zoom out a little bit, when you're looking at say two exercises or or just in broad strokes, multiple exercises where on one end you've got exercise that have a high stimulus, but also a high fatigue, something like a barbell squat, and then something like um, like your leg extension, which might have a lower amount of stimulus, but also a low amount of fatigue. How do you partition between um, the amounts or volume of those different exercises in your program? Yeah. So a lot of the partitioning is done for you
1: by which muscles you don't want to get tired. So the muscle intersection problem can resolve a lot of this. So for example, someone can say, why are you leg extending today and not squatting today? And you could say, well, based on the way this leg workout interacts with my back workout tomorrow, I want to stay fresh for my back. So I do mostly things that don't involve my back. Whereas if you had a couple of days, no back training after you may very well choose to squat, right? So that takes care of a lot of stuff. But another concern, and this is an interesting concern that um, I think gets brought up not very often, when you have a muscle group that's really lagging and is really sort of recalcitrant to growth, it just doesn't want to grow, you know, we we all have muscle groups like that. And some people have a few that are like that. And uh, at that point, I think there's a pretty decent argument to be made in which raw stimulus magnitude becomes the preeminent factor. And that raw stimulus magnitude just to be clear for for folks tuning in is just the top side of that, uh, that uh, fraction of stimulus to fatigue ratio It's just the stimulus, right? Um, Raw stimulus magnitude may take precedence for really lagging muscle groups because at that point you can clear away other shit to make room for the fatigue because it's super priority for you to let's say get your chest to grow but there may be a situation in which kind of no amount of chest flies or machine shit will disrupt your pecs necessarily to get them to grow or just some really inordinate amount um you may be in a position where you're, you're okay with the fatigue but you just need the most hardcore exercise that really gets the stimulus going and a particular example is this if someone has no problem growing their back and their back is progressing super well, the spinal erectors are looking really good and everything's in balance, I don't normally prescribe deadlifts for folks because their their fatigue cost is so high they're so greatly interfere with everything else. But if someone has decent legs, chest, arms, et cetera, and their back specifically their thickness and their spinal erector volume is low, I would say that if they're having a real hard time with it, it's time to deadlift for reps and a lot. And they would say well geez isn't that causing a lot of fatigue Like, yes but anything short of this magnitude of stimulus just may not grow you and i'll tell you this if you do a load of deadlifted rows and your spinal erectors still don't grow and your rhomboids don't grow man you're just gonna have a small back <laughs> you know what i mean like at some point it's not gonna do shit. so i think that raw stimulus magnitude exercises can be chosen when you really have trouble growing something when you don't you probably wanna choose the exercises that have a high stimulus to fatigue ratio and worry much less about the the magnitude of that raw stimulus back.
0: Mm-hmm. And then more um, long, long time scale answer, does, um, does stimulus fatigue ratio change over your training career? Oh yeah,
1: oh yeah. So yeah, oh and how, I so, <laughs> yeah, so there's some depressing shit incoming. So first of all, not depressing shit is uh, after weeks and weeks and months and months of the same movements, they tend to get stale. And the technical definition is now easy for stainless. It's when the stimulus to fatigue ratio falls considerably. Like you, you do leg presses on a new machine for the first week and it feels kind of awkward, but pretty good. By the fourth week, you're just gelling because you found all your proper foot stances and you're really... Con- getting crazy stimulus to fatigue ratio. After three or four months of that, you know, your knees might start to hurt, ankles start to hurt, hips feel weird. The pumps aren't as great as they used to be. The tension isn't going through the muscle like it used to be. That's because of stainless. And then it's time to maybe switch to hack squat or another leg press machine or high bar squats or something like that. Because stimulus to fatigue ratios, when you start training, tend to start trending up and then they plateau for a while and then they start falling down. And that can take any amount from a month up to several years to occur for an exercise. But when it happens, just know that there's another exercise with the following stimulus to fatigue ratio. As soon as this exercise you're currently using intersects that one, this is now the logical exercise to use. In other words, if someone said, if you did hack squats next week instead of leg presses, would you get a better stimulus to fatigue ratio? If the answer is yes, a really good question is, why the fuck aren't you doing hack squats next week? You don't actually have a good answer to that usually. You're like, oh. Uh, I don't know. I'm an idiot. Right. So, Mm -hmm. So, that is one little cool long term thing that happens. And it essentially programs the exercise deletion and replacement algorithm. Like, when do I take exercise out and replace them with something else? Well, the answer is when for that muscle group, another exercise is a better stimulus to fatigue ratio alternative than the one you're currently using. And if you're currently using an exercise that is the best stimulus to fatigue ratio and it continues to be the best, just keep using it. That means, you know, maybe you could high bar squat for three years before replacing it for a month with something else. So that's the case there. However, however, this is really fucked up. So here's the, that was the good news. Bad news. <laughs> Uh-oh. bad news is uh, beginners get the absolute best stimulus fatigue ratios of anybody uh, because muscle growth is incredibly permissive and easy and they're not strong enough to cause a lot of fatigue to begin with. Also, they're just fundamentally not causing a lot of actual disruption because they're just weak and small and <laughs> then the disruption is recovered very quickly you know and no problem the, you're, the, the level of disruption level of fatigue is well within your recovery system's ability to recover quickly and you're so sensitive to growth that you grow a ton so stimulus is what from any exercise and fatigue is eh. and that means for one thing you can go months months without deloading because you don't need to your fatigue just eliminates almost completely as you get more and more advanced the stimulus to fatigue ratios start to fall And that's okay. You still have to choose the best ones you can, but they absolutely fall. uh, And eventually they get really not so great. Um, You know, if you talk about somebody like Phil Heath, you know, he's been training for forever. Uh, From one Olympia to the other, he may gain no muscle at all, right? Like literally, like maybe two years ago, he had as much muscle as he did uh, a year ago at the Olympia or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So you think about that and you go, okay. So, on a technical level if we're going to expand the definition of stimulus into actual muscle growth not just what stimulates muscle growth, but realized growth he was essentially at a zero stimulus to fatigue ratio or whatever or or, an inverse like a less than one stimulus to fatigue ratio that entire time because no doubt he accumulated fatigue but the stimulus ended up causing zero muscle growth or, or you could say over the course of that whole year so eventually uh when we get advanced enough, our stimulus to fatigue ratios go so far south that the stimulus is barely enough to maintain our muscle. And the fatigue accumulates so often that we need to deload quite, quite often. And, you know, on the one hand, that sucks. But on the other hand, you're way more jacked than the most jacked you've ever been. And everyone already knows that training gets harder as you keep going because your body's more and more resistant to hypertrophy. And that's one of the ways in which it manifests every single training session you do on average, over the course of years and years, will will give you a little bit less stimulus than it used to and, uh, and generate more fatigue than it used to. And of course, for folks that transition from drug free sport into not drug free sport, uh, there's a huge bump uh, when they uh, introduce uh, anabolic substances because for any given level of intervention, whatever exercise you're doing, it now causes more hypertrophy when you're using drugs and it causes less fatigue. And even if it causes as so much fatigue, that fatigue is much more quickly ameliorated. But again, for any level of pharmaceutical intervention, eventually everything catches up and it still goes back to shitty symptoms to fatigue ratios. But hopefully at that point you're 290 with veins and what do you care about science then?
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. And then if we could briefly touch on uh, STR.
1: Sure. So STRs, we developed a couple of other indices. So we have the raw stimulus magnitude, we have fatigue, divide those two into each other stimulus to fatigue ratio. Then we also have the denominator of time, right? A lot of people, their limiting factor is not fatigue. Uh, The limit factor is time. And for many people for whom limiting factor is time, limiting factor of fatigue doesn't exist at all because they can't be in the gym long enough to remotely approach their maximum recoverable volume. Right, like if I have a sum total of two hours per week to train with weights, I can't physically do enough work during that time to hit my MRV. it's impossible. So then I'm faced with a different constraint. And uh, the constraint is how can I do as much diligence to all of the muscles I want to grow or maintain in a very short amount of time? At that point, the exercise of stimulus to fatigue ratio doesn't much matter anymore. Look, yeah, well, big stimulus is great, but how little fatigue it contributes is irrelevant because fatigue is literally no longer a limiting factor. Um, it's like a buying a car and being like, you know, like how, how well does it do in the, in the jungles of the Amazon driving around? And someone's like, are you planning on driving in the Amazon? You're like, no, not at all, just in the city. And like, so what the fuck do you give a shit, right? So if, if fatigue doesn't sum up to any level that's pertinent, who cares about stimulus to fatigue ratio? However, your real limiting factor is time. And your real question is this, how can I do as much diligence as possible in the short time allowed? So the numerator be- stays stimulus, the denominator becomes time. And we've f- fractioned time out into a couple of things just to be more useful for folks, like how long does the exercise take to set up you know, like some people are like, hey, why don't you, this is something I literally asked, why don't you wrap bands around the hack squat? I'm like, cause I don't fucking want to drag bands in my bag and also put bands on Mm -hmm. a fucking hack squat and a different machine I have to use different hack squats. I don't know what the band tension is. Like, fuck that. I don't want to set it up where some people, this is much worse. You ever see some people do like a band set up on the bench press where they take like two super heavy dumbbells on each side and they tie the bands to them and then they unrack the bench and the bands are attached to it. I'm not dragging over the 110s and 120s. Fuck that. And imagine you have 45 minutes to train every day because you're a busy stockbroker or a busy medical doctor. You're going to fuck, fuck that. Get me on a bench press machine. Because even then, like setting up the barbells, how much time does it take? To take or well, 135 and then 225 350 whatever where if you get on a chest press machine you can literally just click 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 selectorized another factor in time is how long does the warm-up take which of mm-hmm. course it takes into account setup time but also some exercises just take longer to warm up for how long does it take to warm up for lunges just uh body weight lunges or lunges with some dumbbells i mean you do like six or seven lunge steps you rest for a little bit you do a couple steps with the weight, you rest for a little bit and you stretch out a little and then you're fucking golden. Like three minutes after you show up to the gym, you're doing work sets. How long does it take to warm up for a proper hard and heavy squat? Uh, I don't know, 30 minutes or something like that. Because like that means business. You got to warm up nice and slow so you don't get hurt. Another one is push-ups versus bench press. I mean, how long does it take to warm up for push-ups? Like, just not that long. What about bench? Well, quite a while. So it turns out, uh, and here's another factor for for the time factor is for any amount of time using the exercise, how many muscle groups get stimulated? So if I tell you, and this this was the thing that used to set me off back when I was a personal trainer, people would be training in the studio in which I worked, like some of New York's most successful business professionals. These people, time to them is thousands of fucking dollars an hour. Never mind the fact that they work so much, they'd much rather be seeing their families than fucking spending time in a gym. So they come in two or three times a week and I saw other trainers doing like one-arm cable shoulder work. I'm mm-hmm. like, I think training for the Olympics. And the judges said, like, look, we need your rear delts to just a little more crisp, and then you'll get the knot. No, they did not even ever going to see the rear delts. Instead of that exercise, why don't you have them do a barbell bent-over row? That trains, to some extent, the hamstrings, the glutes, the spinal erectors, every muscle in the back, and the biceps, and the forearms, and the rear delts all in the physical same amount of time it takes to do the stupid bullshit. Actually less, because this is a one arm isolated exercise. To get the other arm, you got to fucking do this. Insane. So that's just a really good example of abject ignorance of the STR. It's like, look, this person wants to stimulate as much muscle turnover, if not growth, as they can while they're here. Compound, heavy basics, multi-joint movements, absolutely beat the shit out of everything. And when you look at who's done this best, turns out CrossFit's really good at it. Like most CrossFit workouts will fuck up all the muscles in your body in like 30 minutes. That's great. Now, is it appropriate for bodybuilders? No. What's the stimulus to fatigue ratio of CrossFit workouts? Awful. But if you train two or three times a day, or sorry, two, three times a day, good god. Two, if you train two or three times a week for 30 minutes at a time, you're never hitting your MRV anyway. And at that point, expediency is job number one. You want to get as much stimulus as possible, bang for the buck, which means a lot of Easy to warm up for body weight involved compound movements are absolutely the way to go to to trash the muscle in the shortest time possible.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a important thing for people to consider, especially uh, when they only have a few days to to go to the gym. And you see people just trying to hit isolation exercises, and I mean, they would just get so much more done if they just thought about you know overall raw raw. Uh, stimulus and the total number of muscle involved in that sure. exercise
1: so. sure and, and it's really like it's less of a tragedy when people well it irks me less i suppose when people do it by themselves like like i got a stockbroker at a jam and he's training himself What does he know about training nothing he knows stocks right so he's gonna do like shit he sees other jack guys do or whatever uh and then he's gonna do a bunch of dumb cable shit and a waste of time but like Personal trainers will have their clients do this stuff. I'm just, I was like, "What are you doing?" Yeah, I've recommended this on several occasions, and including in the book, um, compound, alternating, antagonistic supersets are absolutely the way to go. So, like, have your client do a set of barbell rows and then a set of push-ups, barbell rows, push-ups, barbell rows, push-ups, thirty-second break between each one of those cycles. You just took care of basically the entire upper body, five sets, and it took you a sum total of maybe ten minutes you're done training upper body. Now, is it maximal stimulus? No. Is the fatigue ratio bad? Yes, but who cares? You do that with legs and then you do that with arms and shoulders and 30 minutes later, I mean, that's a very robust hit to the the body. It also burns a ton of calories. It's challenging and really frees your mind. I think some people train in part to get in shape and in part to sort of leave their academic or their work world behind and kind of flush out psychologically, man, nothing's going to flush your ass out like some compound alternating supersets. You won't even know who the fuck you are at the end of that shit. Uh, Whereas if you're doing like, you know, single arm chest fly, you're like reading your phone at the time, it's not really as unplugging. So it's hard, but in all the right ways, it saves you a ton of time. It's good all around. Bodybuilders at a high level will never do this because the each lift interferes with each other one so much that the stimulus to fatigue ratio just gets out of hand and the raw stimulus magnitude turns out not to be that good because they're so strong they run out of breath before they run out of anything else but if you're just a regular business professional you're not that strong you don't need that much time of rest between exercises and that's another thing that kills me people will like do, you know, they'll recreationally powerlift in their spare time. They'll train three days a week and they'll sit like five minutes between sets because they saw their favorite lifter doing that. Motherfucker, you weigh 120 pounds. You don't need five minutes of rest between sets. You can do a (laughs) set every minute and just get as strong as you ever could. So the SDR is good to just keep in mind, even if you're not super time constrained, just so you're not wasting a bunch of time. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Keeping in mind um, time for this session on our podcast right now, and um, just watching the clock and just wanted to wrap up and hopefully talk a little bit about your recent prep. Um, How did that go overall?
1: Yeah, it went super well. So I was originally prepping for uh, a grouping of shows in like June, but the coronavirus decided those shows weren't gonna happen. So I prepped for 14 weeks from January to May, and then I took like, like seven weeks uh depending on how you count five to seven weeks of uh just like sort of maintenance and then i went back into 22 weeks of prep for the bodybuilding show that i ended up doing in early december Mm -hmm. and a, a lot of um interesting stuff uh came about uh, but uh, they figured out a lot of stuff with special sports supplements that uh, I was messing up before a lot of insights about fluid balance and, and water balance and salt manipulation and things like that. And it turns out we figured out some stuff because I was on stage with, with striated glutes, which is cool. Um, I'll tell you, this is probably not news to you or anyone else, but having striated glutes looks cool, but it doesn't feel all that great. <laughs> yeah. you, you kind of feel like you're a ghost you have no idea what's going on. I remember um, Jared Feather was recovering, still in the very early stages of recovering from his pro qualification, and uh, he was coming with me to the show. And him and I, like, after like we landed on the plane, I remember being like, "Okay, what do I own that I brought on this plane that I don't want to leave here?" Because normally you're like, "Yeah, wallet, keys, cell phone, got it." But I was just like, okay, I knew I owned things in the real world. It was just like my thought processes were all messed up, yeah, Uh, terrible. I would forget random objects, and I would do things and then forget what I was doing. And I was like, oh yeah, I was brushing my teeth. Uh, But you know, that comes with the territory of super high fatigue and lower body fat levels and stuff. Uh, Interesting experience, almost a religious one. Um, Learned a ton about myself. Probably became a better person psychologically because you know when you're on a really low calorie diet. a tendency to want to lash out and think the worst about people because you're such a you're such an end of the rope yourself uh i found it pretty enlightening to be able to control that and now that i'm getting more food because i'm massing, i'm just the happiest person in the world uh and i think i learned a lot of things psychologically from that
0: yeah yeah it's funny how your sort of mental processes break down um in my last prep last year i was uh, like on the wards and there there were times when I would like yeah. just stop and just like write things down like I used to do as a medical student and just to, like okay this is my differential like these are the different things that could be causing this guy's chest pain when it's like normally all that stuff just runs on autopilot in my head. Yeah. <laughs> How was your bedside manner because you probably had a pretty muted affect. I oh saw. man. They're like is this guy it dead was... or what the hell is going on? <laughs> I remember there was this one time when um, a patient was like um was like i want to get out of the hospital and like i had i was i wanted them obviously to to get better and i was just like same <laughs> so just like... they're like why you <laughs> like nothing i i can't say anything that's not one syllable anymore <laughs> um, awesome. so yeah oh well, what would you say were the a couple of the biggest lessons that you took away in terms of your own sort of programming and bodybuilding Sure. Um, well, one
1: is take deloads a little earlier than you think because staying at a level of high chronic fatigue is stupid um, and it doesn't offer you anything. Another one is I think dieting at a high level for those that have the bandwidth for it the best occurs and this is actually pretty common practice at the at the high level, um, pushing, pushing and pushing pulling. So you basically present a pretty gnarly calorie deficit with quite a bit of a caloric expenditure. And you do that until you're so dieted out and so fatigued that you can't sustainably do it at a high level of quality anymore. And then, you know, they may occur for, let's say, 10 days. And then you take three or four days to go back to maintenance and uh, eat a considerable amount of higher carbohydrate, refill glycogen stores, your sleep improves, you start recovering way better. And you can also pair this to slightly less uh, cardio being done. After three or four days, you feel fucking pretty good and you're really recharged. And then you do another seven to 10 days of burn. And alternating that uh, is I think marginally better than just having predictable calorie drops or the same level of calories the entire time, just staying at a deficit the whole time. Uh, I think that pulsatility offers some pretty good advantages. They're subtle. Um, regular clients don't need them like if you just have a a diet client that needs 12 weeks of fat loss they could just fucking cut their calories every three weeks and they're fine um i think that especially when you get to pretty exotic body fat levels you need you can't sustain the pushes long so you need to push pull push pull push pull and on average it's a push but the pulling back really gives you a big break and it's a lot of other things like how do you become you know, the best worker, well, you work hard during the week, but then you take your weekend seriously, you get a lot of sleep, relax, you could really recharge. I think that same thing occurs with dieting. So I think I'm a pretty big fan of that approach. Um, and that also minimizes how much chronic fatigue you're carrying. It minimizes how much that fatigue affects your fluid dynamics. If you get fatigued enough, you start to hold a lot of water under your skin. The uh, pharmaceutical interventions compound that damn near exponentially. And so when you're pulling back, a lot of times you're like, oh, wow, I'm, now that I filled out with glycogen and my water dynamics are back to normal, I actually got much leaner. And then it, even, it excites you even more to get into another little push. So I think that push and pull method has some merits that a lot of people, in at least in the enhanced side of the business, the majority of people approach prep like that. In the natural side of the business, body weight so easily and well correlates to body composition that a lot of people don't like pulling back because their body weight goes back up and it kind of makes them a little crazy on the enhanced side. People have abandoned body weight as meaning damn near anything at all. Mm -hmm. Here's a funny story. Um, I started my prep 22 weeks out at 225 pounds and I weighed in for my contest in the evening at 225 pounds. Wow. Yeah. I stepped on stage at 220. So like, but I did not just lose five pounds of fat. This is insane. I have like completely different physique. So you can't get addicted to body weight when the enhancement is part of the equation. But even as a natural athlete, I think it's important to keep body weight as an important feature, but maybe allow yourself for some diet breaks, quote unquote, uh, um, without abusing that term. It just diet recharges and you push, 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 and you pull, push, 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 and you pull. And advanced athletes can make that an auto-regulated process um, where, you know, once you have a few days of pulling, uh, or or in other words, a few days of kind of just more maintenance-style eating and less cardio, you're going to know when you're, you you can hit it hard again if you've done this a few times and you're really in touch with your body whereas if you're new to the process it's better to have a coach you, know, you send them body weight you send them training results send them pictures tell them how you feel and they come back currently i'm coaching just for fun uh my friend charlie jung uh one of the world's most muscular asians i will confidently that guy's say insane. he's yeah he's on another level right so um So you should, it's really funny walking into like, I've walked into a bunch of gyms in California with him where there's lots of Asians around and Asians particularly just have no idea what to make of them, they're just like, and as you can see in some of the younger kids, they're like, I could be like this. And it's like, (laughs) I don't know, maybe. (laughs) But like, so in any case, Charlie is uh, gonna be doing a show uh, here in a couple months and I'm incorporating this approach, coaching him. So like currently we have three days of the week where he's at a pretty nasty deficit and then four days of the week where he's pretty much at maintenance. And then like, depending on how much progress he makes every week, I can increase the number of days to four or five potentially at a pretty nasty deficit. Or if he's pretty ahead of schedule and he's getting really fatigued, I can contract it to two or three. And that still is high quality work, still dieting, still working. It just chooses the rates based on responses. I think that's pretty neat. I think it's a pretty decent lesson to take away from it. Maybe it's wrong, but that's the lesson I learned.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting, actually, because especially considering how like in the natural world, it's very popular now to do take very, very long preps. Um, And like, for my prep, I like sort of went in with that attitude Took 27 weeks. And like, I had strided glutes eight weeks out, and just sort of looking back and like looking at the amount of like, bring back our point about like the mental disruption, you know, like, being being at a low body fat percentage, just isn't good for your general life. (laughs) And uh, you probably like don't wanna, you wanna be careful about the the time you spend in it.
1: That's a really good point. You know, um, Jared Feather, you know who Jared is, I'm I'm sure. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, My current roommate actually, and new IFBB pro. Uh, So he uh, was a natural pro before he ever turned to the dark side. And he has for a long time expressed dissatisfaction With what he considers to be an extreme overcorrection from excessively short diets in the natural community to excessively long ones um you know you say 27 weeks is a long time i know people who prep for 40 weeks and you know at that point it should be just two distinct diets because you're either you're way too fat to begin with and you need two diets and one big ass like one or two month break between them uh, But on the other hand, like you said, and, and if you ever want to talk to Jared, maybe I can like, sort of like convince him to come on the yeah, podcast. And be he's good. super busy, but if you send me a message, to me uh, I'll absolutely try to make that happen. He can go on a pretty long rant um, because he's inherited a bunch of other people's clients, and he's turned like, geez, he's turned like over twenty people a natural pro, and they're always baffled as to the most he'll diet people for is like twenty weeks, and usually it's like twelve to sixteen. And he just gets to work. Uh, and wh- as soon as they have striated glutes, they're two weeks out. Because when you think about it, once you have striated glutes, clearly striated glutes, I mean, Bill, like, how much more body fat can you possibly lose? The answer is just not that much. And uh, will you lose a ton of muscle in those last two weeks pushing it hard? Let's say yes compared to eight weeks of striated glutes as a natural, how much muscle do you think you lost then? And if you think it's zero with eight weeks, it's for sure gonna be zero with two. You know what I mean? So it's one of those that I'm I'm super interested that you said that you you thought your prep was a little too long. Uh, My analogy that I made before this is uh, being in prep is like getting real close to a fire. Yes, you don't wanna get too close too fast. You wanna accommodate yourself. But if you spend too much time really close to the fire, you're still burning, get in, get lean, win, get out. Uh, (laughs) And there's of course, another time maybe we'll chat, but there's the opposite problem of people who wanna try to stay too lean after their show. And that's a terrible idea in any case. And of course, a very seductive one because of course you wanna look, of course, ideally we would just all be in show shape all the time, like everyone on Instagram but neither one of those things happens to be true. So I think there's a balancing act where you for sure don't wanna diet too fast, but you wanna kind of get to work, get in, get lean, get the show over and then reverse out.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so anyways, we've dropped many spoilers at this moment. So (laughs) (laughs) would love to talk to Jared at some point and you about your thoughts on uh, these kinds of issues, I just That's had true. to abuse you for the uh, stimulus st- to st- st- fatigue ratio right now because there's no one else who can you know, speak to it on that level. So yeah, where can people find you and your book?
1: Cool, yeah. Uh, so uh, actually we're doing a lot of YouTube stuff now. So if you go to YouTube and go to Renaissance Periodization, uh, tons of my videos are being uploaded all the time, tons of other folks. And then uh, at Strength on Instagram, just click through the links and you'll find the book. Uh, at R P D R uh M I K E R P Dr. Mike on Instagram. That's my personal page. And if you just click right on my bio, it takes you to a customized part of our RP website, which is like Dr. Mike's stupid corner of bullshit. And the book <laughs> is like one of the first things you can click on, among other free goodies. So
0: give that a look if you're interested. Great. We'll put those links in the description. Thanks so much for being on, Mike. Thanks for having, me, Dr. Wong. Always a pleasure. That's all for now guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.